Welcome to the Carl Reader Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Be Your Own Boss, where today I'm delighted to be joined by Jason Rickaby, co-founder and managing director of PhD Nutrition. Now, normally when I introduce people, I will say, um, you know, welcome to my friend or somebody I've worked with. But you know what? I came across Jason through a post of his on LinkedIn that started to go viral and it drew me in because he was just on the same wavelength as me insofar as how business should be done and what people should and shouldn't be doing. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carl. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So, um, as I say, it's, a, it's very much an honour for you to join us, given that we've got no previous working relationship. So, um, tell us a bit more about yourself and your business. Absolutely, yeah. So, I'm, uh, as you've introdu- introduced, Jason Rickaby, 43 years old. Uh, I co-founded PhD in 2000 and or 2005 when we uh, when we established the business. We launched in 2006, and I've been in sports nutrition and I guess around this area now, protein-driven area and gym lifestyle, gym-going area all my life. 17 years old, I went into the gym for the first time. Uh, before then, I'd done played a lot of football, a lot of rugby, a lot of competitive sports, always been tremendously competitive as a child. I found my found my answers through sport and performance and what that brought me, I guess, the confidence, uh, the increased self-belief. So really into sport, found the gym. And then when I found the gym and everything around the gym, the great nutrition, the lifestyle, the sports supplements, that massively appealed to me because ultimately this was something I could do myself. I saw the benefits. It was regimented and it... Uh, it was there's a regime I could really get behind, sure. and that really appeals to my mindset. If I've got a regime, a regimented day, uh, and a regimented lifestyle, that really appeals appeals to who I am as a person. The PhD really born was born out of my experience within within the industry. So I started I started in the gym at seventeen eighteen, became hooked on sports nutrition and what that could do to you as a as a trainer, how it could build your body, how it could build your confidence, how it could. Uh, build your mindset and your belief, self-belief. So that led me into really being, you know, excited, really, really wanting to work in this fledgling industry of sports nutrition. Sure. So I left, uh, did uni, did leisure management at uni, didn't really love it, but at the same time I'd found the gym. So ultimately I knew I wanted to go into this into this industry. So I joined, uh, went to work in a store in, in, in Leeds, okay. around West Yorkshire, where I'm from. So this is a supplement store, I presume? A sports supplement store, okay. selling protein, etc., vitamins. From there on, I started to do some writing, kind of further my understanding of the area, and then decided, listen, I've got to get into working with a brand. Product is my passion. Uh, driving growth is a passion. And changing the game. I wanted to change the game. It, it, sports nutrition was right at the start of things back in those days. So yeah, so got into the industry really young, 18, 19, 20. At 22, I was working, heading up a brand, a small brand uh, in the um, in the Northeast called Peak Body. Worked there for six, seven years, really honed my skills, became, um, you know, knew, got to know everyone in the industry, the key players, and I guess, uh, you know, formed my my credibility there, which allowed me to then start start PhD in 2005. Sure. So it's um, quite a jump selling somebody else's stuff to making your own stuff and distributing it and so on. How, how did you find that learning curve of actually starting the business? 
So I always knew and I wanted to do my own brand. That, that mm. was always my, from, from 18 years old, that was my plan. Okay. And I guess my, um, the co-founder of PhD Mark, so a guy called Mark Bowering, uh, both Yorkshire-based guys, both uh, really similar backgrounds, similar drivers in life, both uh, lower working class uh, upbringings, both kind of the similar mindset mark was an entrepreneur uh, a little bit before we started phds he sure. was he was a customer a customer of mine when i was selling the other brand okay and we met together and he had a little he had some small offices and a small warehouse and we thought you know what this game needs changing in the in the uk it's boring yeah it's full of because back when you started it was pretty much maxi muscle and a couple of others wasn't it so maxi muscle were doing a great job they really helped the uk industry get you know sort of kicked off but apart from that there was us brands imported it was sure. disingenuous it was pictures of big bodybuilders gaining 60 pounds of muscle in two weeks sure and we just knew which ain't was, down to the protein is that it? was just bs you know <laughs> yeah. you, you know and we knew that at the time it was like listen let's start giving people just some credit just sure. give, you just give them some credit for being a bit cleverer than looking in a magazine and thinking use this weight gain powder you can look like the next mr mr universe sure. and we knew that was missing and 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 we were both um consumers at the time we were 20 27 28 29 year old guys serious gym goers and um, we used we use protein we use sports nutrition i still do i still think like a consumer which is my probably my number one uh, probably the number one positive to me, I think, like consumer. So we essentially went about, listen, let's create a brand for us. Sure. We're target market. Let's create a brand that we love, that we would love, that we would pick off shelf, that we could buy into as a lifestyle, that we could absolutely uh, believe in its authenticity. Uh, so that's, yeah, so that's 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 where we started that's from. That's where we started from. So in terms of the, I, mean, I imagine there's a minefield of regulations and you know, uh, quality control and so on. Where, where did you get started in that? Because obviously selling somebody else's powder is fairly simple. You know, you, you know it's a credible brand, you order, you then sell it, and you're, you're relatively hands-off in the whole process. Yeah. But when it comes to actually, right, we've, we've got this vision, we know what it is we want to sell, we know what it is the customer wants, we know what the customer wants to feel like, et cetera, et cetera. How do you then take that and actually source the product and go through... All, all of the process that's needed to take it from a, from an idea in your head through to a product on the shelf. So I guess that's where my earlier experience came in. So I'd done six years in a brand. Okay. So I knew manuf I knew the manufacturers. Sure. I knew I had great contacts within uh, product developers. Uh, I you know I knew labeling. I knew how to get all the tubs, how to get all the uh, pouches, lids, etc. So I I had all those contacts. So really, it was a case of kind of you know rolling Just, them up and piecing it all together, piecing it all together, rolling them up, uh, and then getting into I guess uh, my first my first taste of how you actually manufacture a product from yes. you know from ideation. So I love all that. I'm great at that. Creative, very creative. But then listen, how do we do the real stuff? How mm. do we get mm. that? Uh, and that's exactly what I'm asking about. Is you know, how how did you get yeah, head around that process and what challenges did you find along the way? So I'm really into nutrition. I'm a nutrition geek. So sure. I really understood exactly what I wanted to go into it. You know, what how how you make up a protein powder, flavoring, sweeteners, exactly everything, but still you need to do it. So 
it, it was tough. We went through probably nine months of trial before we brought PhD to uh, to market. Sure. And ultimately, we had this big vision at the start. Everything has got to taste miles better than anything else in the market. If and, you remember, and it wasn't hard back then, If you remember it? back in 2005, things tasted not very nice. Yeah. So we really wanted, we thought, listen, you know, our guys and girls are going to be using this product three, four times a day. It's got to taste nice. Sure. It can't just be hold your nose glug it down and hope for the best. So we so we spent six months working with the manufacturers, the developers, the guy who was the nutritionist or who I've known for now for twenty years. You know, you know, we're friendly, uh, really good friends. And we specified just you know, for example, our first chocolate flavor, mm. we used about six different chocolates. Sure. Just to get that uniqueness and to make it taste really indulgent and taste mm. great. So that was that was that was a tough bit. And then you get and then you have to realize, right, you've done the product, you've mixed it. How do we actually get it all produced and bring it to into a warehouse and bring it? In? And that was that's that's where the learning comes because sure, anything up to there is easy. Yes, and that's when you get. So I've got a geeky question to ask you. Um, having drunk far too many bad tasting protein shakes in my time, um, in terms of the flavor, how much of an impact does the constitution of a shake have on the flavor? Is, you know, are they two very separate items where you can you can dial up and down the flavours you choose and the um, nutritional side of it's the same, or does one depend on the other? So some some powder, especially powders. Let's take let's take powder. Some powders mm. are harder to flavour than others. Sure. For example, we're just doing a a vegan plant based protein. Well, well, we'll make it taste great, but it's hard. Sure. When you're working with dairy and whey protein and milk protein. It's easier because it naturally tastes quite creamy. So you, you you essentially just accentuate all the positives of the Perfect. dairy to make great tasting products. And then when you're using other products, you know, as pre-workouts, intra-workouts, things that are more amino acid or creatine based, yeah. that's tougher. You need to go with fruit based flavors. If you just glug back down as quickly as possible, don't you? you? you absolutely, <laughs> these days. Yeah, but but again, even even pre-workouts now taste fantastic. Yeah, uh, and that's just, and I think that's the development that I think PhD helped drive forward in 2006. Things tasted crap before us. Sure. Now they taste great, and I think we helped change that. Fantastic. So, sorry, uh, t- took us off on a um, on a different path there. But if we come back to the fact that you know we've we've designed the product in terms of user experience, so we we know that nutritionally it's fair. We know that from a flavour perspective it's fair. Um, you said that the difficult part was then taking that product that you've tried to sample of actually onto the shelves. And ultimately, you know, we did. So for the nine months of development, we I spent nine months visiting every single person I knew in the UK. Sure. Sampling, look at this packaging. This is how the brand's going to look like. Can we get your support? Luckily, I knew, you know, I knew a lot of customers already from, you know, from my time in sports nutrition. And I think I've got a good manner. So people buy into me. They, you know, you know, they believe me. I think that's really important sure. in business. If, if people believe you, then they tend to support you. So I yes. got really good support from uh, the wholesalers, distributors, the retailers that I knew at the time. I think they were ready for PhD and they were ready for something, you know, that I was involved with as well. Sure. Uh, so they supported me. So ultimately it was, you know, day one, I can remember our first delivery of stock came. It was March, March the 6th, uh, March the 6th, 2006. That's and it was, uh, it was a snowy day in Hull and uh, all the pallets, arri- pallets arrived on the truck. So we were, we, we were sweating. What does the product look like? And uh, yeah, I can remember pulling, handballing them in into our tiny warehouse. I think we've got about 30 pallets and uh, opening every box to make, I'm a real perfectionist. Sure. Some of the lids were dented. 
some of the labels weren't stuck on right. And I was like, you have a nightmare. How am I going to sell this? Mm. How am I going to... Mm. I just thought we had, you know, 30, 40 pallets. This is going to stay here forever. It's going to not, it's not going to work. Sure. How, how, how are we ever going to sell these products? Is a customer going to feel the same about the products that we do? And it started off, it started off great. It was slow. You know, the first, first year was an absolute slog. I think I drove, I think I was average 2000 miles a week. Okay. Just driving around. I did every promo on sampling day i went to every store who would have us sure and i stood in a store for eight hours and mixed up protein drinks and sometimes one customer would come in yes but you you, you just keep banging away and that's it's and that's one more it than you had before one more than i had before yeah. and, and, and do, you me, mind, do you mind me asking from a financial perspective yeah what, what kind of level was the business at back then after year one, so our first year we struggled our way to around four hundred thousand pound. Okay, uh, of turnover sales, which we, you know, we thought was pretty good, and then we had ambitions. Listen, can we ever get this business to one million pound? Sure, and uh, and we did. We did one point one in the second year. So brilliant. You know, we grew. And was it still privately funded at that point? Privately funded all the way. Yeah, for the sure. first for the first uh, nine years of the business, privately privately funded up until we were fifteen million turnover. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we grew, and with a small team until until we were nine million, which was felt like about five years. There was myself, who pretty much MD day to day the business. My co-founder, who was very much sort of in the in the in the back seat. He and I spoke every single day a lot, uh, but I drove day to day. And we had I had a right hand man who's still with me, sure, and an accountant, a bookkeeper, and a designer, and that was it for up to nine million. Pounds. Wow. That's yeah. phenomenal, isn't it? It it, it was it was uh, it, it was liberating in the way that you didn't have to go through any single hoops. What yes. I decided, what I decided, I'd have a quick chat with my co-founder. Done. Ultimately, gut instinct plays a massive part, I think, in business, and I still think it plays a massive part in the business where it is now. I think it's massively, uh, it's a massive value. If you've got great gut instinct around a category that you live and breathe. Then I think you need to follow it most of the time, mm. and ultimately everything we did for the first five years of the business was good instinct driven by instinctive data. You know, we it's, knew it worked, and, and we, you know, we were I, consumers. I think we look at buying the buying decision for consumers as well. Yep. We all make the decision emotionally, and then work out the logic to back up what decision we've made. So, you know. Uh, a lot of the times in business, you're absolutely right. The gut feel will then find a way of justifying it to make it look like there was some process behind it. Yeah. So nine million, privately funded, um, very lean business. Um, it's fantastic, by the way. Um, you then obviously had to take on a team to drive it to fifteen million pre-funding. Yeah. Um, how did the business look at fifteen mil? Still small, you know, small sales team. Uh, probably a probably a team of around. 18, 19 people. Sure. We outsource our uh, distribution and logistics, and we outsource, we use external manufacturing for everything. So okay. I've never, I guess supply, operational manufacturing and detail is not my strength. Yes. So I, figure, I figured, I figured work to my strengths. My strengths are understanding the consumer, creative brand, ideas and products sure so i concentrated on that and i kind of let the experts do the expertise things mm. and my right hand man who works for me uh, sean who was basically started me as a pick and packer is now the ceo of the business he managed to supply he built our supply chain pretty much Brilliant. myself uh, without any expertise of supply chain and that's kind of the attitude i really love in a business it's take a chance on someone right at the start 
doesn't have the doesn't have the technical skills, but do you know what? He's got the attitude, I think, and the desire and the drive. And that's the thing you can't that. teach, isn't it? I don't think you can teach that because I brought in. Yeah, I've I've employed a lot of people. I I I think I'm a pretty bad recruiter. Sure. I don't recruit particularly well. I tend to go on emotion and empathy. Mm. So mm. I'll meet someone if I like them, and I think I, I and I think I can get on with them. Then I'll tend to employ them. That's not always the way to do it. It's it's uh, not. It's however, hard. I find recruiting quite tough. There is an argument for. Well, actually, that's a whole lot more important than can they do the job, though. Because um, I was listening to a Tony Robbins um, audio book, and he was talking about... Oh, sorry, a Tony Robbins podcast. And he was talking about his recruitment process, and there's three key questions that he asks. The first one is, will they do the job? The second one is, will they get on with the team? And only once they pass those two criteria, the optional third is, can they do the job? Because you can, you can always teach for practical skills. And it's interesting now because I've gone full circle. So we now recruit on attitude. We made a big thing about, and, and, and when I look back at the people who succeeded in the business, whether in a senior team or the not so senior team, the ones that have succeeded and are still here have a great attitude and they've learned the skills as they go along. Sure. And I brought in, and I've gone full circle on recruitment and, and, and I've tried to bring in, you know, proven background expertise and I've been uncertain about the attitude, and pretty much 100% mm. of them have failed. There's a real, in a small business, with a small business mentality, which we still are, you know, you know, 20, 25 million ish around business, um, attitude and drive and ownership is like is still the really, really key number one attitude mm. for business that you know, you know, that we need. You've got to really do the doing. Yes. There's not much space. Strategy is great. And you've got to be strategic. I'm strategic, but I don't do it in any normal, trained, uh, textbook way of, of strategy. I need someone to probably write it down and put it in a presentation sure. for me. But I'm strategic. But but I've done the I've done the doing, and so do my senior guys as well. Fantastic. So fifteen mil, you decided to go for external funding. Um, t- talk us through round one. So I think mo- I think the case uh, the reason we did that I think we built a business to a great. Great point, you know, myself and my co-founder were, you know, we always agreed, listen, let's build a business. Our, our big, big audacious plan was, can we build a 10 million pound business? If we do, we'll exit. We'll build a 15 million pound. Sure. So we, I think it's really key to have a plan. Mm. So always start with a plan. So if you want to build a family business, build a family business. Don't talk about exiting. If you want to build a brand that's going to change your life, your family's life, and give you the opportunity to do things that you want to do, then keep to that plan. So sure. we built a plan, 15 million. It was the right time for both of us. I was uh, really hands-on and kind of key to the business and key to the ongoing business. So the first deal really was kind of a private equity type deal in that my co-founder exited the business, sure. took, all his, uh, took all his value off the table. My deal was take most of the value off the table, but reinvest some yes keep me hungry not that i needed it i just you know i love the brand and i love the category reinvest some and then drive for the next stage so we did that you did that at you know 15 15 million uh and then and then it was you know heads down let's kind of continue to drive to 20 and it was in a tough time because the market um the market's changing so quickly in mm. sports nutrition mm. you, in 2014 when it was we were just two years post VAT. So sure. VAT got um, got added to, to to sports nutrition drinks. They came under this catch-all of drinks, so that was tough. You know, some brands didn't 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 succeed. That we have got a real strong brand, 
a real uh, enviable position as a brand. So we we survived that, continue to grow. But the market changes all the time. You know, protein bars have come into the market. Sure. They were always there, but now they're just a massive part of the market. Organic growth is huge. Powders is tougher. So, you know, it's gone through the market over the last five, six years has gone through massive amounts of change. We're still here and growing and we're growing well. A lot of brands are really struggling because they've just not adapted and they've just not. And also, some brands who have sold and exited, you lose your original team. When you yes. lose your original team, you lose some of the DNA. Your DNA is overused a little bit, and, uh, but I think it's really important uh, to keep the DNA of the business and the brand. I, I think you're absolutely right because, I mean, you said very early on, but people were buying into you yeah. and it wouldn't just be for suppliers. Yeah, it wouldn't just be for customers, it would be for team members and so on as well. Um, something that I just want to ask you is, obviously staying on with um, external funders and moving, um, for, from what I understand you've said, into a minority shareholding position, yep. um, how did that feel? Um, what, was the, what was the changes for you? And was it as, was it as easy? Was it easier? Was it more difficult? You know, how, how did it change your day-to-day -day life? So I think day-to-day, -day, so I, I guess I was always reasonably comfortable uh, not being, you know, myself and my co-founder were 50-50. Sure. So that was, that, was that was a real partnership. So then I, you know, slipped. I, I you know, my, my, my share percentage became lower. But I still managed the business. And I was still, we looked around for the right, what we thought were the right buyers of the business that allowed me to still retain creative direction. Sure. Strategy of the brand. And... You know, the guys who acquired the business were, were really clear on that. Listen, it's your brand. You've got to drive forward. We're here to we're here to help you. And, of course, if things don't go particularly great at the start, then people get involved sure. who, who don't know as well as you do, and that's tough to manage. So that was probably the area I found a little tough to manage. You go from decision by gut instinct and great data, but based on instinct, to a desire, I think, to use data to drive decisions that you know probably are wrong. Sure. And how do you then manage that? So it's it's managing stakeholders, I guess, became a new part of my experience. How yes. do I manage stakeholders rather than just managing myself? Uh, so that, that, that was where I challenged. But, you know, I, I always look at things as, I, listen, I never expected to have my own business when I was 18. I never expected to make any money when I was sure. 18. I never expected to build a £1 million business, let alone a £10 million business. Everything is a learning curve. So I kind of take all the learnings from every experience I get in business and in life and just use that as a positive. Fantastic. So that uh, at that stage, this was the, um, the first external investment. There was subsequent as well. So talk, talk us through that journey. So then we ran with the uh, 2014 acquisition for four years, and then that exited 2018. Sure. And uh, yeah, the current current owners of the business, uh, SAS PLC Group, bought the business in 2018, November 2018, and they ultimately are also have a brand, SAS Science in Sports, who sure. is an endurance endurance brand player. So great synergies. Uh, in that they, those guys, SAS are traditionally a cycling brand, gels, etc., that deliver you know you know great performance, carbohydrate performance, energy, isotonic into the cycling world. Just recently moved into football, and it's synergistic because it's very different to PhD. PhD is mm. a gym going, younger consumer. The market now is you is is moving very, it's becoming very cool, very current, very. Um, 
a little bit urban, but it's it's also becoming how do we you know how do we move sports nutrition and performance nutrition into a more emotional area, which is what PhD are really trying to do. With we're trying to deliver kind of mindset. Uh, around the gym lifestyle rather than just go to the gym, sure. build a six-pack, build muscles. It's about, right, I go to the gym because, and the gym does this for me. It helps me in my life. It helps me with my he- mental health. It helps me, you know, with my focus in everyday life. So the synergy now between two brands is great. So we're, we're about six months into that relationship and it seems to be working really well. Brilliant. So I'm um, just talking about the, the wider space of the health and fitness industry. It'll be interesting to get your observations on where it's at, because I mean, you've mentioned about nutrition going through significant changes. And I think we've seen some some brands, I, I don't want to say come and go, but actually, it's more to a point brands come into the market and diversification of products and so on. Um, but also the you know, the sector for the uh, facility providers, personal training and so on, that's undergoing some massive changes as well at the moment. Yes, yeah, so I can remember when I so when I first when we first started PhD two thousand six. If you went to a city and you saw two or three gyms, you were lucky. Mm. I walk around London now; it is unbelievable the amount of gyms, PT studios, boutique gyms, large gyms, chains. It is unbelievable. And gyms were struggling. I mean, gyms gyms were struggling years ago, probably a decade ago, and. Uh, the market now is just absolutely massive. The whole desire for wellness. The big change, I think, the massive change, it's definitely cultural, isn't it? And it's coming into a younger demographic. And I believe we're seeing it in there's less alcohol content. It's not yeah. cool now at 18 to smoke or drink. Mm. It's mm. cool to go to the gym and look great on Instagram. Yes. Which is completely different to when I was younger. Absolutely yeah. different. And that's a great and that's a great benefit of social media. There are lots of negative benefits. And, and people focus far too much on negative anyway in life. Positive of social media is people, you know, it's inspiring people to increase their health and wellness. And the byproduct of that, and I think it is a byproduct. I think initially, I think people, young people, which are driving the growth, and young women especially, which are driving the growth, it's it's an emotional well-being thing, and the byproduct of that is you also look a bit better, or look mm. a bit healthier, or look a bit leaner, look a bit more muscular, more toned. That's a big difference. Women going to the gyms, but that now, you know, when I first started in the gym when I was seventeen, eighteen, so twenty-four years ago, very few women in the gym, and if they did, they would always be on the cardio section yep. doing some treadmill. Now women are going to the gym and they are smashing up the weights more than the guys. Which, un- unheard, as you say, unheard of 20 years ago. And even, you know, five, ten years ago, there was this misconception, you know, females go to, if you go to the gym, you're going to turn, turn into, like Arnie. Yeah. look like a man. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to, and, and ultimately that was always a little bit silly, but I could see where the, the misconception came from, uh, you know, female bodybuilders at the time, but ultimately, you know, you know women... Not the same level of testosterone, but ultimately they, the, the drive behind, and I think CrossFit. So CrossFit has made a big difference. It's broken down barriers for women to go to the gym. It's a class schedule, so there's a timetable to it. Yeah. It's not. I'll do a set of ten, look in the mirror, and pause. It's I'm going to do this in forty minutes and, and collapse and collapse. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I can go back and recover. And it's there's class. It's class based. It's regimented. There's a regime. It's structured and it's really, really hard. Mm. I mean, as a guy with twenty-four years in bodybuilding, I could not do CrossFit. No. And I go to I, I was at the Body Power Expo this weekend, and some of the uh, some of the some of the female classes in, in CrossFit were 
astounding to watch. I mean, some of the, the functions, the multidisciplines these girls can do is unbelievable. And that's the big change around health and wellness. Guys have always wanted to look buff. Mm. Even now, guys are coming in for a mental well-being thing. The real explosion is the female category and, and their and the breaking down of barriers to lifting some weights. Yeah, and I think there's also, as as you referred to earlier, the change in the approach to marketing by the brand you're driven by yourself, where it's not about, you know, you drink this shake and overnight you turn into Popeye. Absolutely not, no. And, and that was always something we were really desperate to get away from. And, and we've done that with a lot of our, our, our social media and our marketing. So we made a big decision a couple of years ago. We want to... Our ambassadors that we use, we want to be really different left field. And hence, you know, six months ago, we signed up Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone is, you know, a grime artist from yes. Manchester. But he absolutely epitomizes, embodies the PhD story of hard work, self-discipline, independent artist, uses his time in the gym to find his answers to life. Mm. And ultimately, he then puts that into music, lyrics, and Bugsy Malone has, has been amazing for us. We did a great campaign called Use Your Fear, which we which we drove hard uh, towards towards the start of this year. Uh, and he's been he's been great for us. So and and the ambassadors we are now looking at, and you know we'll have some aesthetic the cold I guess who are, who are around looking great, but predominantly we're moving into you know snow sports, climbing. We're moving into athletics. We're moving into music with Bugsy because. All these guys are tremendously serious about their gym-going lifestyle. Mm. They're not only athletes, but they train and they prepare and they eat and they think like elite athletes, but they put it into their everyday everyday life. But it's also demonstrating, this is a recurring theme on the podcast with the guests I'm speaking to, the crossover between physical health and mental health as well, physical fitness and mental fitness. It is massive, you know. I mean, even the piece we did with Bugsy was called Use Your Fear, mm. and that's about using your fear in life and being held back a fear of change, fear of challenge, using that, turn it into a massive positive, use your fear to break down doors we talk about. And ultimately that is, you know, it's you know, you know, it's a touch on it's a touch on mental health. It's it's how you can use your mindset. That's what we believe is the biggest, biggest thing about the health and fitness on health and wellness revolution. It's a mindset. You get your mindset right, then ultimately wellness will come afterwards. Fantastic. Do you know, Jason, there's so many questions I can ask you, and I'm going to I'm gonna try and cap it to one more, but I might chuck a couple into the rapid-fire questions. Um, but you've you brought me quite nicely onto influencer marketing. Um, you know, obviously, a, a number of the health and fitness brands are using ambassadors, which is a, a, another way of saying influencer marketing, um, and social media is awash with them at the moment. How, how do you see that whole marketplace at the moment? We see influencer marketing really clear. So we we use ambassadors. We pulled away from what sports nutrition typically do. And we see influencer marketing really, really key, especially marketing to millennials and Gen Z, if you like terms. I'm not massive on terms, mm. but that, you know, you know, you know, the new consumer. And it's human first. So are they are their ethics and principles great? Are sure. they are they are they what the brand needs? Do they tie in with the brand? Authenticity second. Yes. Are they authentic? Do you believe them? Or do you look at them holding up a pack of protein and think, do you know what? This is just BS. You don't use it. Why am I going to yeah. buy it? And then third, it's influence. What kind of influence can they deliver? So firstly for us, it's the human element and are they authentic? And that then... And that's fantastic, the order of those questions. So if you don't mind me cutting in, because many brands would dive in with influence first. 
I, influence now comes from, so people don't want to be sold to now. Mm. Don't want to be sold to because if you've been sold to, you don't believe it. And why should you believe it? Why should we leave a picture? Why should you believe? Why should you buy into a brand that has, has paid somebody 50 grand to stand in a picture holding a, holding a, what looks like a cardboard cutout of your product saying, buy this, I lost X amount of pounds. Why, why would somebody now, given what we know about life, what we know about people, why would somebody buy into that these days? Sure. It, it, it needs to be authentic, you know, and that's why Bugsy works great for us because he, so he used PhD for three years sure. before we brought him on as an ambassador. So his influence was already going on. Yes. And there's a genuine love for the product as well. You you know he's he's not going to come out the next day, um, you know, holding a stack of pucker pies, for example. Exactly. He's you know he's he's chosen us as much as we've chosen him. Yes. So that for us is absolutely first. And then it's down to, you know, the guy is about as authentic as he can possibly get, and therefore he's an absolute his his human elements absolutely tie into the brand elements. And 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 you're right. The amount of influencers who you know, you, you can go back and look at their page a month before and they've probably spoken about another brand yes. in the same field. Yes. That's not authentic. No. Fantastic. Jason, you'll be pleased to hear we're going to go on to rapid fire questions. That's cool. Although I say pleased, um, some of them might end up being quite testing. So we've had no preparation on these questions at all. Um, as as per usual for the regular listeners, we're going to go through um, just, just a, a few questions for you to get to know Jason a little bit better, but also to extract some of the things that might maybe have helped shape the journey along the way. Sure. Um, so the first question, I guess, is only a question I could ever ask you, is um, what, what's your favourite flavour of protein shake? Oh, my favourite flavour. That is a really tough one. I am a massive. <laughs> my favourite flavour of protein shake is still a really good chocolate. Really? To eat a PhD diet where chocolate cookie is probably, a Belgian chocolate, I should say. I don't even know my own flavours. Belgian chocolate is probably still my favourite. Yeah, There's some great flavours coming into the market, but a good, great chocolate is still my favourite. Yeah, same here. My missus is chocolate mint, and I can't stand chocolate mint. I don't do chocolate mint. No. I don't like after eight minutes. I can't, yeah. I, can't eat, I can't eat chocolate mint. I can't get on board. No, but it's chocolate all the time for me. Okay, so we're going to go to some more businessy ones now. Um, if you were to set up a mastermind group with three other people, Okay, and they can be dead or alive, they can be fictional or non-fictional. Who would you choose to have in that group? What's the mastermind about? So what are we, anything, what are we talking any, about? Anything that you would like direction on. So to, um, I don't want to feed you any answers, but to give you some context to the answers that other guests have given. We've had, we've had business advisors, we've had friends and family, we've had uh, comedians, we've had authors, um, we, we've had all sorts of people. That's tough. So I think I, so I'm always really inspired. So, so music plays a real big part in my sure. life. I'm inspired a lot by music. I'm inspired a lot by change makers. I've always had this big thing of being a change maker. I don't think I'm anywhere near yet, but I think, I think change makers. So one, so okay. So everyone, anyone I can choose in history of time. So Bob Dylan, okay, but number one, and then I would probably go for. I'd probably go for Chuck D from Public Enemy. Fantastic. Public Enemy were the first hip-hop band I heard in 17, changed my life culturally and uh, everything. Third, I would probably, do you know what? I'd probably go for Bugsy Malone. Okay. I've become reasonably close to the guy over the last nine months, and he is absolutely bang on 
in terms of knowing his brand and knowing what to do. Sure. And, you know, I, I think that some people are um, dismissive of artists and think that they're lucky or whatever, but actually the same level of work, same level of inspiration um, goes into performing in any area. Yeah. You know, it really does. Next question. What advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Uh, be braver, take risks earlier, and don't be so fearful. Fantastic. What book is the book that you've recommended to the most people? Book. Uh, that's challenging because I'm actually quite a big reader. I read a lot of different things. I read quite a lot of Sam Harris. Okay. So I recommend some Sam Harris books. Sure. It talks a lot about, you know, sort of the mind and mindfulness. Uh, so it would be it would be a Sam Harris book I would recommend. Uh, other than that, I do a lot of fictional reading, so anything by Stephen King. Yeah. I love Stephen King, so any Stephen King book. Fantastic. Next question. What is the best purchase that you've made for around 50 quid or so? Can be less, can be a little bit more, but not too much more over the last six months. 50 quid. I reckon I reckon these jeans I've got on, I bought from Zara for 40 quid. Okay. And I just love them. I've not been out of them. I, I'm I'm literally sure they're going to be torn somewhere soon. Sure. I can't, I can't you know, stop wearing them. What, what, what makes them so special? They're just comfortable. They're really, really comfortable and they feel like they feel like pajamas. Fantastic. <laughs> do you know, I, I need a pair of those. I really do. Or or may, maybe just size up and admit I'm getting older. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, the last question I'm going to ask you is, what is the best bit of advice that you've ever been given? I think the best bit of advice is when you so when you when you have a modicum of success, and 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 with that comes monetary. I think monetary success, whether you class that as success or not, monetary reward. Let's call it. Um, a guy once told me who'd been through a similar a similar experience. He said to me, uh, he said to me, because of your background and who you are, you'll never change, but people around you will. Sure, and that's. That's that's my biggest bit, bit of bit of uh, advice I would give to anyone I guess going through the same journey. But to be, to be conscious of that change. To be conscious of that change. Conscious of, I think the challenges that success brings. Uh, I, I remember reading. I think it was Bette Midler who said uh, the hardest part of success is finding someone to be happy for you. Sure. And I think that I think people who are successful in any way probably find that because you're moving on quickly mm. and you tend mm. to be a person who. Uh, focuses single-mindedly on something, and with that, you probably forget sometimes around the human element. And therefore, if you don't have people around you who get the journey and understand you, then you tend to leave people behind very quickly. Fantastic. And um, advice I'm sure that most in business wish they'd have heard before. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Um, can you tell the listeners where they can find out a little bit more about you and your company? Absolutely, yeah. So we've just launched uh, our new website, phd.com. It's a fantastic new website, great new platform, uh, loads of new features on there. There's a little bit about P the PhD brand and our and our journey and the way we started for them. And then uh, regards me and my advice, I do quite a lot on LinkedIn. So just search for me on LinkedIn, Jason Rickaby. And uh, yeah, I... Uh, I tend to I tend to blab a lot on there. So any kind of advice I, I, I like to give. I think LinkedIn is a great tool for kind of passing on advice to you know to to startups. So absolutely. Jason, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Carl. 
Thank you for listening to The Carl Reader Show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends. This podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, D&T Advisory, helping you unlock the magic in your business by adding value, not numbers. Find out more at www.team-dt.com. QuickBooks, helping UK small businesses stay on top of their finances.